Welcome to the Discipleship Discussions podcast. We believe everyone can be a disciple who makes disciples. Our goal is to help you with this process. Each week, we take the lesson taught through basic discipleship and break it down in a discussion format. Now, let's join today's discussion. Hey, welcome back to our podcast. Uh, my name is Benji Linder, and with me, as always, have to have him in order to have this podcast, the man, Dr. Patrick Latham. Today's topic is the church. This is part two of the church, and we're going to talk about the ordinance of the church. Um, but talking about those, uh, let's start off with a story time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about your baptism day. Yeah, so um, for me, um, as baptized as a teenager, as a young teenager. And so um, my pastor baptized me. You know, I don't remember a whole lot about it. I remember uh, being back in like where they had the baptistry at this church. I'm back behind the stage. I remember getting in a robe and um, I remember they had um, like little name tags, like sticker name tags on your shoulder where they put your name so that the preacher, in case he forgot your name, could read it off your shoulder because they were baptizing a lot of people. And my pastor happened to know my grandfather. And um, I remember the person in front of me, like their last name was Wayne, I think. And so the preacher was like, you know, kind of joke cutting up with everybody. And he was like, oh, Wayne, you're not related to John Wayne, are you? And uh, they were like, no. (laughs) And then when he got to me, he saw my last name and he knew my grandfather. He's like, you're not related to Harold Latham, are you? I was like, yeah, actually I am. So there you go. uh, That's one thing I remember. Yeah. So. All right. Now, what year was that? Uh, That would have been like early to mid nineties. Gotcha. 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 Baptismal pool or river Creek? Uh, Baptismal pool. Gotcha. Gotcha. gotcha, Indoors inside the church. Greatest story is baptizing somebody six foot 10 inside of a baptistry like that. And so when you said it um, triggered a memory, you did, you did that one. Oh yeah. Yeah. And can you imagine myself? So we had to put the water level really low uh, because was it buoyancy, not stability to float. So anyway, I take up a lot of mass and then kid was six, a yeah. kid, young man, six foot ten, and so um, that was fun. You know, it's hard getting them back out of the water, yeah. um, and then especially when they're that tall. But well, you know, the when I was in um, seminary, they did a um, they did. I had a class where we like practice baptizing, like at the pool on campus. And so the older preacher taught me to baptize. He said that if you baptize correctly, it's actually easier when somebody's big. Because if you know how to use, if you know how to have them bend their knees mm-hmm. and use gravity, that a bigger person can actually be a little bit easier than say, it, well, I'll take it back. It's easier, it, it's easier to baptize a bigger person who relaxes and follows a proper protocol than to baptize like a little wiry young girl who gets rigid and resists and locks up. So I think that was the point. So, yeah, no, we did that in class too. We had a couple uh, guys that uh, volunteered to be baptized over and over mm-hmm. again, which kind of leads me to my next question. So outside of the seminary training portion, I've uh, worked with students for years. You worked with students. You've probably seen this in ministry that um, maybe, you know, a student, you know, feels like, they're a little older. Um, they were young when they were baptized. They're a little older yeah. now. They want to get baptized again. Or maybe like sometimes they feel like, I realize I really messed up. And so now I want to get baptized yeah, yeah. again. So tell me your perspective on that. Yeah, that's, um, you know, my, my perspective would be, you know, you go back to the symbol. Why did Jesus institute baptism? 
what does it mean even go back to the way in which it's supposed to be done mm -hmm. you know if you look at the the meaning of the word baptism our word baptism is actually a transliteration not a translation a transliteration of the greek word that's found in the new testament and so the greek word is baptizo so not much different than baptism it's a transliteration so you get the difference like a transliteration is you take the actual letters from a foreign word and you just use the letters in your alphabet and you pronounce it as close as possible to the original so like recently i was watching the news and i still remember a little bit of the hebrew alphabet or i know the hebrew alphabet I, i'm not good with hebrew but i saw um you know this scene where there was a big fire or you know some type of attack and it's in Israel, and I see somebody with a, a vest on helping people, and I can read right on the back of his jacket, paramedic. It's a transliteration. They just took the Hebrew letters and spelled out the word paramedic. So the word for baptize is a translation, transliteration mm -hmm. of the Greek word baptizo. Why did they do that? Well, when the English Bible first started being translated, um, if you like took a stance on, hey, do we sprinkle or do we immerse? Dude, whoever the king or queen is at that time, if they disagree with you, they could say, go find the guy who translated that immerse or, or sprinkle and kill him, cut off his head. So the English translators were, you know, wise mm -hmm. for their head's sake right. to, to transliterate it and put baptize. Now, I say all that to say a little bit more to get an answer to your question. No, you're fine. So, uh, so baptize, baptizo, the word means to dip or to immerse. Right. Some would even say to plunge. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that baptism is all about a person being dipped, immersed, plunged underneath water. Why? To give this object lesson that your old life has been buried and you're raised to live in newness of life. So here's my question. When should that be done? This pop quiz? No, okay. I'm just, it's a rhetorical question. Okay, okay, I'm letting good, it sink good. in. So, okay. <laughs> When should that be done? If it's a symbol of your old life uh, being put away and you receiving this new life in Christ, when should you be baptized? I would argue when you first become a Christian. Do you need to be baptized after that? I would argue only if you feel your first profession of faith and your first baptism were, were insincere, not valid. Only if you feel your first profession of faith was a false profession and if your first baptism was a false baptism. Right. So example, I, you know, I've had people before maybe join the church from a Methodist background or another branch of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they like legit had believed the gospel previously and been baptized in their other denomination. Now there's some Baptists who have the approach that it's almost like if you're not a Baptist, you're not a Christian. You know, they're almost like Church of Christ mm -hmm. with it. So um, I've taken a perspective. If this person gives me what appears to be a genuine profession of faith, you know, from the past, then, you know, I'll accept that somebody can be saved in another denomination. Are you right. kidding me? Right. So um, 
So if they have a profession of faith, but then they had a baptism that involved sprinkling or immersion, or not immersion, it was sprinkling or, or whatever, you know, my counsel may be like this. Okay, I get it. You were saved years ago. I acknowledge that you're a Christian. Like I sense that from you. I mean, nobody knows your soul, but you're giving acknowledgement. Um, but when it comes to your baptism, I want you to see what Scripture says. Scripture says it is a picture of your old life being buried and you being raised to live a new type of life. I've got to ask you, the mode or means by which you were baptized before being sprinkled, right here in Romans 6, 4, look at what it says. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that mode really paints the picture that baptism is supposed to paint? And, And asking it a question like that, normally you get a... No, it doesn't. You're right. Um, not that the purpose is me winning or being right, right you know, right. but I've had a lot of folks who, man, when you share that, they just instantaneously kind of like, you know what? That's right. I want to do what Jesus told me to do. I want to be baptized in a way that paints that picture. So to answer your question, a second way I'd say this, if somebody's saying, especially a student, this happens in student ministry a lot, right? Um, man, I've been living wild the last year. I made a profession last year after church camp and got baptized last summer. But then I went back to kind of my old ways. Now I've gone off to another camp this summer. And after living like the devil for the last school year, I just feel like I need to get clean. I need to do something to 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 to, to draw the line in the sand and to, to say I'm really going to follow Christ this time. And so sometimes people will feel they need to be baptized. Not just students. I've seen grown men maybe unfaithful to their wife. They relapse into alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Preacher, I want to get it right. I want to get baptized and just let everybody know I'm serious about this. And, you know, my counsel would be there as I ask somebody from the Methodist background, Mm -hmm. what does baptism represent? Mm -hmm. Does your mode of being sprinkled truly give the picture? In a similar way, I would ask that student or that man, hey, what does baptism represent? Do you really need to be baptized again? And then furthermore, you know, I think by baptizing that person, we actually kind of hamstring them for the future because we inadvertently have them place their faith in this second profession of faith, the second baptism. Now, indeed, if they were if, if, if you walk through, if you counsel them and found out that maybe they, they weren't really saved, then baptism again may be needed. But if they feel they indeed made a genuine profession of faith the first time, if we have them rebaptized, we kind of hamstring them for the future because we say, hey, being baptized a second time is what will help you instead of maybe going back and say, hey, where's the breakdown? Maybe you haven't learned what it means to live as a disciple, to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. So I would say that's a long answer, but my short answer would be, man, I think you really only need one baptism, and that needs to come immediately after conversion. And baptism after that avails you nothing. It doesn't wash away your sins. It doesn't foster some type of commitment that's going to help you do better this time. You need to learn how to live by faith. You need to learn how to live by the great commandment. You need to learn how to walk in the spirit, how to die to self. 
That no, that, that I like I like that. I like your explanation there. It brought up another question in mind. Um, so you've probably experienced this at being a student camp or different places. Someone gets saved, they want to get baptized immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened to me. One of my first camps I ever led. It was my first camp as a student pastor lead. And um, by God's grace, I had we partnered with my home church. My home church pastor was there, and this kid got saved, and I was ready to baptize him then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he kind of um, coached me and gave me some wisdom them on, you know, let's talk to the parents first and let's yeah, not yeah. do this and all that. So for or against instantaneous baptism? Yeah, I, I'm I'm for baptism as close to the profession of faith as possible. You know, there's all types of wrinkles in this debate. Right. Um, there's what you're talking about. Uh, there's also the idea of uh, nowadays you see a lot of uh, really what we could call catechizing, like um, especially for kids and students that they need to go through a class for 10 weeks or half a year or three weeks or whatever. They need to be trained before they can be baptized. You know, I, I always go back and, and I, I see there's some merit in that so that kids can fully understand. But I've been placed as a pastor baptizing my own kids in a church where there were folks in the church like, did they not go through the class? <laughs> it's like, man, I'm the preacher. Come on. Like, I can't tell whether my kids are making right. a profession of faith. So, um, yeah, I don't. And I think we have to be careful if parents, if like God fearing disciples feel that their children are ready to be baptized. Should we really submit them and say that submit them to some course of study and say that's a requirement? You know, bottom line is you don't see that in scripture. Correct. In scripture, you see baptism pretty close to the moment of conversion. You know, I've always used the argument if you study Paul's conversion in Acts, then if you go and look at his testimony of his conversion in Galatians one, I think, and compare notes, you'll see that Paul was baptized really early on, and then he went out into the wilderness for how long? Like three years? Right. To be trained? Correct. So his training, and I mean, this dude was killing Christians, right? So his training came after his baptism. His baptism was really close to his salvation. Now, I know another wrinkle in this is the idea of missionaries on the field, foreign contexts where there's persecution. I've got a friend in North Africa who will tell me like people come to him? I want to be. I want to become a Christian. I want to be baptized. And he's like, I don't know. We'll wait and see. And he said he kind of gives him the cold shoulder because of the persecution there. If he says, Yeah, I'll baptize you, the individual may be fishing to see if he's a Christian, and then they may go report him to the authorities. So that's interesting. Yeah. So so. It, and it, here's an important thing historically to con- consider with that. Some people go back to the history of the early church. They find documents and even artifacts from first century Rome, and they'll say, well, look, the early church maybe used a different method for baptism, it seems, or they delayed baptism for a, a, a period after salvation. I go back to the argument, you don't see that in Scripture, number one. But number two, consider the, the historical context. Mm-hmm. After our New Testament is complete, or before it's even complete, what, did the, what environment did the church find itself in? An environment of persecution. Why were they perhaps holding out on baptism? To test people to see, is this a genuine convert? So 
I would argue, I guess there's a time and place for maybe having some of that testing, maybe in a situation of persecution, maybe in a situation where a student or a child or even an adult who are just not sure and they might need further explanation. But I would say the biblical model is very close to the actual moment of salvation. And that brings up the question, why? Go back and listen to the session of teaching that went with this. It was designed to teach people obedience very early on, Mm -hmm. the first act of obedience, but then also to test obedience. And so those two components, um, not only the precedent of Scripture when Paul was baptized and when the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized, right? Mm -hmm. Can you think of other examples? Those are those are two that come to yeah. mind um, as far as you know the Ethiopian units like hey there's a puddle of water let's yeah, let's right do now, this boy. yeah yeah um, yeah I'm all for quickness right yeah. and so being in student ministry sometimes it takes like months before you even yeah. get a phone call back and um, and I kind of wonder if we open up the door of doubt by keeping the event of salvation and baptism so far spread. Yeah, that's right. Especially with young Giving the enemy a foothold and, and yeah. Yeah, and you, um, I mean, there's something powerful with the ceremony, if you want to call it that. It's almost like a funeral. Some people nowadays forget how important a funeral is. I mean, that's not an ordinance of the church by any means. Don't want to muddy the waters here, but there's something powerful in it. You know, like even with funerals now, some people feel bad even saying that word. It's a celebration of life, you know, and it's like, okay, I get that. That's fine. But let's remember it's a funeral. You you have this event to grieve, to have a sense of closure. Baptism has the, it's this important celebration and announcement and pronouncement and confession and symbol and active obedience early on in your Christian experience. And God knows that, that it does something for our soul and, uh, really benefits us for sure um and what (laughs) again working with students um just explaining the significance and uh funny thing and i'll move to my next question is i'll never forget early on i'll talk to students about baptism i'll say it's a metaphor and i'll go through this whole deal and how it's a metaphor and one kid i'll never forget i get to the very end and like nodding the head the whole time he's like okay so what's a metaphor? <laughs> so I explained it all. I was like, oh no, these metaphor. These are uh, these yeah. are not. This is not a good way of hey, explaining. Let me, that. let me add one other thing there. Yeah. Um, that's pretty funny, by the way. Um, you know, going back to this idea of being quick. You know, I think there can be an extreme there. I, I preached one time in um, New Jersey near Newark. I was there traveling and preaching, doing like this event. And a guy comes forward after I preach and says, I need to become a Christian. I need to get saved. The pastor who's hosting this meeting turns around right away. Fill up the water. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So right there, baptize him. You know, so, um, you know, maybe that's helpful. I don't know. But like, I was like, is that an extreme? Should he have at least said, okay, explain what you mean by you want to be saved, like be saved from what, be saved by whom, you know, so maybe there's a little bit for that. The other thing I would say is, and I don't know if I want to like go to war over this, but you know, the idea that we have to, I think these ordinances that we're talking about should be um, done within the context of a local assembly of believers. Mm So there's an edge of encouragement, edification, accountability with that. 
So I think we have to be so careful sometimes when we do these things removed from the gathering of believers. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize there's all type of gray areas there. If you baptize a student at a student camp, mm-hmm. do we consider that a gathering of believers? Uh, do we say, um, well, there's not. It's not really because the whole church isn't there. Well, is the whole church ever here? You know, it's <laughs> Good like, point. yeah. So, you know, there, I think for, for the, I don't think there's any clear line in the sand. I mean, you could go to Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, he's, they're out in the middle of nowhere, just two of them dunking him, you know? So I don't know, but I just say there, I think there's always a little bit of safety and wisdom of saying, let's make sure there's a representation from the church there and that there's others there because this is a profession of faith. So there should be somebody there. And you have to remember in the book of Acts that there's a lot of things that are descriptive without really being prescriptive. Yeah. It's not saying this is how it has to be done. It's just saying this is what happened. So, And you mentioned earlier, and I'm going to shift gears, tie into what you just mentioned. Um, so the history of baptism. So I studied that in Church History 1. Uh, Gonzalez, what's his first name? Uh, wrote the uh, book. Husto. Husto, Husto. Works for me. Uh, if you just do Google <laughs> Gonzalez bad. Church History, yeah. phenomenal book in learning about how they used to Why baptize. Why you ask me to pronounce his first name, man? You should take a stab at that. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather you go down. <laughs> and so I was just going to agree with whatever you said. He but spoke yeah. at one of my, I had him speak at my Sharp, first man. church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, sharp. He, he's not for, for, I know we're getting off rabbit trail here. He's not real big on immersion. I think he's Presbyterian. So I had him speak because I loved his church history stuff. And out of all the things he could talk about, he had like 45 minutes one night. He got on baptism. Oh, and okay. Go, anyways, go back to what so it, was <laughs> yeah, just, it, it was interesting, but yeah. go, go back to... No, no, I, was, I imagine that calls for I some I think he's emails. passed away, God rest uh, his soul, but... He's super sharp yeah. and reading his that work. That book's great. That book's um, great. Both volumes, and I would super, super... Um, encourage someone to to read that but yeah they would baptize um and i'm not saying this is right or wrong but uh in complete nude because they uh-huh. they had the opinion this is how you came into the world and yeah. all that and, and just some of the things that you study baptism and then you get to the sprinkling and the anabaptist and so very interesting but you you mentioned about baptism being the proclamation of faith public mm-hmm. proclamation of faith so we live in a culture for right or wrong um is we kind of in baptist world i think create a lot of gray area because we would say you need to walk the aisle to make yeah. a public proclamation of faith. Then we get in the baptism pool with them and we say, here's your pu- public proclamation of faith. So in your opinion, and if there is a right answer here, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, that's been kind of uh, something I've had to wade through like pastoring and deep mm-hmm. South culture. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what would, uh, David Franklin says Appalachian culture. You yeah, know, that's he, right. That's he's right. kind of used that terminology. Right. Our, our director of missions for our local association for our area here. I haven't faced that here at my, my current ministry, but faced it others where you'd have somebody saved who was younger, my age at that time, late 20s, early 30s. There was a, I remember this individual coming to Christ, getting saved. I'm pumped up, fired up. They say, hey, I'm not really for like going down and crying in front of everybody and standing in front of everybody. Can I just get baptized? I thought, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me, right? If Jesus said this is the way, if Paul said this is the way you proclaim and profess mm-hmm. Christ, let's do it to it. Let's uh, baptize you. And so they even got him up in the water and said, church, uh, here's so-and-so recently prayed and asked, believed in Jesus, asked the Lord to save him. And based on what Jesus has done, 
And this is their time to proclaim their faith. You're not going to see them coming down and standing up front. They want to do that here from the waters, baptize them. Person catches on to that. An older person in the church comes and says, man, I remember, you know, used to be in the church, you had to come down front and cry at the altar and stand up front and be baptized and walk the sinner's trail down to the altar. And, uh, you know, I just can't believe it, you know. And it was almost like we were compromising and becoming liberal because we weren't doing that. Right, correct. You know, so I kind of stood my ground on that and said, hey, if Jesus, Jesus never said anything about walk in an aisle. You know, now some preachers do try to take that text. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my heavenly father. And they use that for you need to come respond to the altar call and stand in front of the church. It's obviously not what Jesus was really talking about there. The, the modern altar call, I believe started with Finney, right? Charles so, D. Finney? Yes, I mentioned that one time to a professor. He corrected me saying it was there before him, and I can't remember. But I think I, th- I think he did, and then Billy Graham you know, blew yeah. it up. But it was so. kind of a lot of second great, second great awakening Correct. movements that popularized the, um, the altar call, mm-hmm. the come down front. You know, Billy Sunday, was he mm-hmm. the one with the hit the sawdust trail and, right. and all that? So, um, yeah, I would just say that's a convention, something the Lord used in a way. Um, in American culture, primarily, he's used it other places as well, but it was kind of a uh, birthed out of a movement in American church culture, and it's not a prerequisite for actually being saved. And we need to recapture this idea that baptism is a way to make your public profession, and we need to highlight that. We've muddied the waters. We've confused people. We have people that trust in the fact that they walk down an aisle instead of uh, trusting in Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and trusting in the gospel. So we need to be clear on that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we've all heard the phrase of someone placing their trust and filling out a card, checking yeah, a box. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Um, it's a very dangerous spin that American. You know, the American view of the gospel at times or misview of the gospel has spun on that. Um, so last question, uh, talk about the Lord's Supper. Um, so I've seen this growing trend where, uh, Lord, and maybe it's happened before. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, don't, don't criticize me for not knowing full history, but, uh, Lord's Supper being observed outside of church services. One instance that I can remember is at weddings. Um, mm-hmm. and this would be Protestant weddings. And it was just a bride and groom, not everyone else. And they did it because they were now united and all that, which I kind of understood. But then I realized, like reading scripture, um, there's something that's not aligning here. So what is your take on the Lord's Supper outside of the body of Christ? Yeah, interesting question. We 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 um we had like a a real life scenario with where we were tested on this recently with uh coronavirus pandemic we're having church by internet and tv broadcast and we observed the lord's supper um you know i led that i called for the lord's supper we distributed the elements and uh, we did it virtually in a way Um, there were other pastors who chose not to do that because they felt like hey we're not together as the body, therefore we can't have the encouragement, the instruction, the accountability we should have with the Lord's Supper. So I, I can see that in a way, but I felt like we still had an environment where we told people, here's the reason for it, here's who can partake. We are distributing the elements. We explain the purposes of the Lord's Supper, 
And if anybody took of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion, or they took of the Lord's Supper illegitimately as an unbeliever, that's on them. I mean, we, we I felt like we explained it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, though, there is there's great um, prudence uh, or wisdom in being prudent about, you know, being with the body of believers. You know, this is something like baptism, as much as it lies within us, should be done in a public context with the gathering of believers because there is that element of worship, mutual proclamation, mutual accountability. Mm -hmm. So for me, if somebody came and said, I want to do the Lord's Supper at my wedding, what do you think? I would say unless that wedding's like an official gathering of the church, which you never see that maybe in a church, but it's not an official gathering with the pastors or elders or overseers overseeing it. Mm-hmm. I would say unless it's like a worship gathering of the church, no. You know? Um, you know, you run into other things. I used to be kind of leery about a lot of folks like to take the Lord's Supper when they're homebound, sick or in a nursing home, can the deacons or pastors come by and administer the Lord's Supper? And I think for me, I have a little bit of heartburn with that because I'm like, why? Do you understand the right per- the, the purpose of it? Are you really approaching this as it's an opportunity for you to remember, proclaim, and examine yourself? Now, if you are, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily have a problem with that, but sometimes I get this idea of I just want to eat that wafer and drink that juice like it's going to do something for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not necessarily against that. I've just advised, hey, if we're doing it in a private context like that, make sure they understand the purpose and make sure there's a representation of the church there and that they minister the word to them. And it really is like a mini worship gathering of the church because this thing really is as best as possible should be done in a public atmosphere with the gathering of believers with the leaders of the church, the ordained leaders of the church present, um, because they have been tasked with overseeing souls, right? The author of Hebrews says. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there is uh, there should be some stress plates on it. You know, another kind of important idea with all this, with both ordinances, we're seeing a shift now where there's more and more involvement of people administering the elements, or leading in these ordinances who are ordained individuals. So that's a whole nother can of worms. Sure. Yeah. And I want to say never do it, but I say, you know, the Lord does call out the called mm-hmm. and commission them with shepherding the church. And these are the two ordinances for the church. So we need to be careful when we almost create this attitude that anybody can baptize, anybody can distribute the elements. We, we need to be on guard there. I'm not drawing a hard line, but I think, there's definitely a need for vigilance there. And that kind of dovetails with this issue of can you do it in a wedding? Can you do it in a nursing home? Can you do it at a family gathering at Christmas or Easter? I've seen that done before. Yeah, yeah. Good I'm, I'm like, I, I don't know if I'd touch that. I Do think they ask I'd, you to lead in it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As the minister of the family. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I want to, and I'm a pastor. I want to do that with my right. family. I'm saying what? I, I would be like, man, this is for the church. Mm-hmm. We're a family. Different institution, right? I just think that's kind of backwards and people have lost sight of what it's really about and the purpose of it. 
Lost its significance, spiritual yeah. significance. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Yeah. Patrick Latham. That This concludes today's podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you, or rather you, seeing us next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for our discussion on basic Christian life. Stay current with other episodes by subscribing to our podcast. For show notes, visit us online at basicdiscipleship.net. If you have any questions about the materials presented in this discussion, or if you would like to give feedback, email us at info at basicdiscipleship.net. Thanks for listening.